I was a senior writer at the Denver Post. We had left Denver as soon as commercial air traffic was allowed back in the air, and we flew to the Middle East. Um, and we were there for a long time. That's the voice of Ron Francel talking about life right after the 2001 September 11th attacks. When we're coming back months later, I'm on the plane in the dark somewhere over the Atlantic, and I, I pick up a French news magazine, and I saw a picture of two people leaping from the World Trade Center holding hands. And in one of those weird sort of flash moments, I was taken back to this story. A crime in Casper, Wyoming has, has no logical comparison to 9-11 but the effect for the kids in our neighborhood was the same and I began to think about it in terms of uh, that loss of innocence how we could go to bed one night and the next the next morning our world would be completely different in this episode of That Doesn't Happen Every Day, in which we interview everyday people about things that don't normally happen every day, we go with Ron on his journey to come to grips with the horrific crime that happened in Casper in the early 1970s. Ron takes us to Casper, Wyoming, where he was growing up in 1973. Parents everywhere tended to say, uh, you know, come, come home tonight when the street lights come on. You could ride your bike down the street, and you could... You, you build forts today, looking back at that. It was a very different time, and, and it was, um, in fact, a very different place than it is today. Ron talks about the family next door. They moved into the house next door to us. Amy was the youngest. She was uh, four or five years younger than I was, but she was a tomboy. And we were playing on the sandlot, and somebody remarked that Amy doesn't catch like a girl or throw like a girl. And, and her a little friend, a boy from the neighborhood, said, she's not a girl. She's Amy. Amy had an older half-sister named Becky. She was this beautiful, tall, long, dark hair. We were all in love with her, but she was she was at a distance. Me personally, I I I was I I just sort of had this distant crush on her. We didn't know what was coming. In September of 1973, Amy and Becky's mom needed something from the grocery store. So she asked Becky to pick up these few little items and Amy jumped up and wanted to go with her. And the store was not more than a mile from our house. What they don't know is there are a, a couple of local thugs watching. Their names are Ronald Kennedy and Jerry Jenkins. And these two guys have parked on the edge of the parking lot and they see them coming in. And Becky, as I said, is a striking young woman. She's, she's beautiful. One of those guys hatches a scheme almost instantly and he gets out of his car goes over and with a pocket knife slashes one of Becky's tires and goes back to his vehicle. When the girls come out of the store, that bad guy comes up to her 
he says he notices that she's gotten a flat tire and he wants to help. They can give her a ride home. They get into the back of the car of these two guys who had been watching them. And uh, that's where everything starts to go wrong. So over the next few hours, these two guys drive around with them. Occasionally, they even slap them around a little bit to keep them quiet. I think Becky at some point makes an effort to alert a passing driver and, and she pays by being beaten by one of these thugs. They end up going out toward uh, a lake near Casper, Alcova Lake, and to a secluded area between Alcova Lake and another reservoir where, where the water passes through a very deep, dark canyon. You pass over that canyon on a bridge known as the Fremont Canyon Bridge. They park there, and... Uh, it's it's somewhere around midnight. The graphic for today's show is a photo of Fremont Canyon and the bridge that spans it. I've debated about how much to share about what actually happened to Becky and Amy. I even considered just vaguely summarizing what happened to them once the car got to the bridge. But I thought it would be a bigger disservice to them not to let people know what they went through and just how awful their abductors were. So please be warned, what Ron is about to tell you is very disturbing. They get out and beat them. And at one point, Ron Kennedy drags Amy out of the car and over to this bridge over, a, over the river, 120 feet below, and he throws her off. He comes back to the car, and he and Jenkins to the rape of Becky they at some point take her from the car take her to the bridge and they they quickly together lift her over the railing and dump her into the river below she hits a part of the cliff not far below the bridge and bounces farther out into the deeper water she broke many bones, including her hips and an arm, I believe, and ribs in hitting the side of the wall. It must have been horrifying, but it saved her life. By landing in deeper water, she was probably saved. She paddles as best she can to the side of the river, believing that Amy is down there someplace and maybe, maybe dead. And she drags herself out onto the rocky shelf there, complete darkness, and pulls herself under some sagebrush. She's convinced that these two guys are still up there. She's convinced that they know she didn't die and that they will try to finish the job. And that's where she stays all night. She's wearing only a light sweater. She's otherwise naked. The night is near freezing. It's a moonless night, so it's completely black. She can hear sounds, but that's it. And Becky spends that long, cold, dark night down there. How she survived, I, I don't know. When the sun comes up the next morning, she 
pulls herself up a very steep, rocky slope full of rocks that are loose and fall and slide. She can't walk. Her hip is broken. She gets out by sort of pushing herself up. Her back is to the ground, and she pushes with her arm as best she can, inch by inch, occasionally sliding back down until she emerges at the top of the canyon. The pain of that, the the, the determination on her part, it's unimaginable. But she emerges at the top of the canyon almost simultaneously with a passing car with a couple of elderly fishermen in it. They stop, of course, this naked young woman by the roadside, and they rush her to a gas station where they call the cops. And the cops come out, and Becky is taken to the hospital. In the hospital, once she's stabilized, she's interviewed by a couple of detectives. She describes her and Amy's assailants, and almost immediately the cops know who she's talking about. These two guys are so well-known and, frankly, distinctive in their look that they know exactly who she's talking about within a minute of her talking about it. Once these two guys were arrested, there almost immediately began a uh, plot to bail them out of prison simply so they could be uh, lynched, shot, assassinated outside. It's a very interesting element of this story. It, It says something about this idyllic little town that we thought we lived in. Not only that such a crime would happen, but that the reaction might be so, so morbid. I do not want to give Kennedy or Jenkins any more time than I have to, other than to say in 1974, both of them were convicted of the murder of Amy Burridge, as well as other crimes they'd committed against the sisters. Both killers were given consecutive sentences, meaning that they had to finish serving time for one crime before they could start serving time for the next crime. Kennedy only began to serve his life sentence for murder around 2004. Years before that, Jenkins had died in prison of a heart attack in 1998. And wanting to stay focused on the community and the victims, I asked Ron what his family's interactions were like with Amy and Becky's parents next door after the crimes. He said he didn't remember because people didn't want their kids to know about what had happened, at least not in any detail. Kids weren't told everything. They weren't told much at all. Children were still shielded from death to a certain degree, even natural death. The funeral for Amy Burridge was deliberately scheduled during the school day so the kids wouldn't attend and so parents could keep them from attending, you know, without much difficulty. Then you add, well, this was a crime. It, it, it made... The whole idea of of exposing your kids to this kind of death even more distasteful. So, uh, consequently, I think we all suffered a little bit of aborted grieving. We didn't know how to deal with this. My friend is now gone, and I will never see her again. Uh, How do I process that? I wonder if the crime had happened now, with a greater awareness of mental health, PTSD, and things like that, if things would have been different for Becky. 
I saw Becky after the crime. Uh, she worked a lot of little jobs around town, selling advertising at a radio station, and ultimately worked at the newspaper there in Casper, where I was a young reporter. And so we had contact. Becky's mentality at that time, as haunted and as completely discombobulated as she was by all of this, outwardly she was very sunny. She was she was very positive. She got married. Uh, she had a child. Nobody had any idea what was how bad she was on the inside and and what toll this had taken. One night, she goes out to that same bridge where where she had been thrown off and her sister had been thrown off uh, 18 years before. And she jumps off the bridge, and this time she doesn't survive. It was shocking. Nobody, nobody knew. Nobody saw that coming. No, none, not, not people like me who were casually acquainted, but not even her closest friends. In 2003, while doing research about those crimes on Fremont Canyon Bridge, Ron went back to the scene of the crimes and did something I don't think most writers or journalists do. I, I was in Casper doing research. It seemed like this 30th anniversary was going to recreate the conditions of that night. The sky was going to be clear. It was going to be right around 32. It would be no moon. And so I determined that, that I was going to spend that night under the bridge as, as Becky had. Let me hasten and and state in the strongest terms possible. My little sister hadn't been thrown off into that river. I, I hadn't suffered this this awful, degrading uh, treatment. I I merely was a guy who wanted to feel a little bit of the external conditions that she would have felt that night. I wore a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and I went down in the canyon and positioned myself in the spot where Becky herself talked about having laid that night, all night. I laid there, no, no sleeping bag, no coat, no fire, no nothing. I laid there and I waited for dark, waited for midnight. Every sound was creepy. It got cold. After midnight, I didn't know what time it was. My watch had stopped down there, oddly. I, uh, 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 another freaky little event. I covered, for the Denver Post, I covered the first months of the War on Terror. And I spent a couple of nights on cots in Pakistan with army units who were you know, on guard for being attacked. Nevertheless, that night that I spent under the bridge was far more uncomfortable, far more nerve nervous. It was the worst night before and since that I've ever spent. And it's partly because I'm there in my own head thinking about this crime and thinking about what she's experiencing, having a thousand times more pain and, and 
more horror having happened to her. It was just a matter of sitting there and waiting for the sun to come up. And I imagine that's what it was for her, too. What I discovered is that at that time of the year, there's a phenomenon called false dawn. And starting well before dawn, the sky starts to lighten up. And to give you the impression that dawn is coming, the fact is, it isn't coming. This light perks up and you think the dawn is coming and it isn't. And to me, that felt like a betrayal. And it must have happened on the night she was there. And I, I can't even imagine how it must have made her feel to want to see that sun come up and to have the sense that it is and then it isn't. I asked Ron why he would ever go back to that spot where those two people died. And like I say, it's mostly for storytelling purposes. All my reporting, I, I have this feeling that I have to have my boots on the ground and I have to touch, I have to taste the air, I have to smell, I have to hear. My senses need to be deployed and I need to be able to tell you all of those things. But there was a part of me that just that just wanted that connection with my my late friend. I asked Ron if going back to the bridge gave him a sense of closure. No, there's there's no closure. I I think that in our modern vernacular we talk about closure we want closure there is no closure we don't close the door on these things i think the best we can hope for is to get enough answers and to be able to reduce the size of our grief and our pain to something manageable and we can put it up on the shelf in our heart and um take it down occasionally and cry or reminisce or feel, and but we can put it back. It's still there, but it's manageable. Anytime I visit Casper, uh, I visit their grave. I think that's important. I have a little chat with them. You know, I just tell them they're remembered. Pain is the price we pay for memory. In other words, if we want to remember somebody, if we want that good memory in there, we have to put up with the, the pain of remembering it. I wanted to thank Ron for being on the show today. If you'd like to read Ron's true crime book, The Darkest Night, about what happened at Fremont Bridge, it's linked in the description. In the description, you can also find information for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Basically, you just dial 988. You can even text that number. I've also included the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. Again, 1-800-656-4673. Finally, Ron also asked that I include a link for the National Organization of Parents of Murdered Children, POMC.org. Again, the link will be in the description. It's a place where you can make donations to help parents who've suffered losses like this, and it also has resources to help people who may be experiencing something like this. I appreciate everyone listening to the show, and I hope you'll tune in again in the next week or two. Thanks.